Deuteronomy chapter 5. We've completed our series on the Ten Commandments. And our passage today comes between the giving of the Ten Commandments and the giving of the greatest commandment, uh, the Shema, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks. So this is a very important uh, transition in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, We're going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22, to chapter 6, verse 3. Before we do that, let me uh, pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we ask now that it would be your voice that we hear in the reading and in the preaching of your word. And we pray that the spirit of Christ Jesus would so work in our hearts that we would fear you and keep your commandments, that it might go well with us and our children. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear the word of the Lord, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. He, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and still has still lived. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and rules that you shall teach them that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Now, this is the commandment the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, 
you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, our, uh, the, Lord the God of our fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, on Reformation Sunday, we better tell a Luther story, right? Um, This is a a common one I'm sure many of us are familiar with, the story of Luther caught in a thunderstorm. Uh, This was long before he became a leader in the Protestant Reformation. Back in 1505, he was trudging along outside of a Saxon village when the sky grew dark and he was caught in a violent thunderstorm. At the time he was a student at the University of Erfurt and he had been visiting his family and he was on his way back to the university. He's about 21 years old at the time and as he was traveling along the storm came in And a lightning bolt struck a tree near him and it sent him flying to the ground. And in that moment, he was filled with fear and he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. In his fear, he he cried out to to Saint Anne. Now, Luther's father was uh, the owner of a copper mine St. Anne was the patron saint of minors. And so in that moment of desperation and fear, uh, that's where Luther turned. He said, St. Anne, help me. I'll become a monk. He cried out, though, in that moment, knowing he he needed help. He needed someone, as it were, to stand in the gap, someone to be a mediator of sorts. Now, of course, that was not the uh, the end of Martin Luther's spiritual journey. It was a beginning of sorts, actually, and as good Protestants who have learned a great deal from Luther about who we ought to cry out to for help, we can, we can talk about uh, the legitimacy of calling out to a patron saint of minors, but all I'm trying to draw attention to here is the fear that overtook him, the fear that struck him. In that moment, Luther knew that he could not stand on his own. How about us? How about you? Do you think that you can stand on your own? Have you ever had an experience in your life that brought you near to death? An experience that put the fear of God into your heart and caused you to cry out for help? Well, that's exactly what we find in these verses. After hearing the thunder of God's voice speaking out of the fire and smoke of Sinai, the people cry out for Moses to serve as their go-between, to serve as their mediator. God's, God's glory and his greatness put a proper fear into the hearts of the people and left them crying out for a mediator. And friends, the good news, the good news of the gospel is that we can come to God through Jesus at an even greater mountain 
Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, because we have been sprinkled and washed clean by the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at these verses. I want to consider them in three parts. First, the the terrifying glory of God. Secondly, the people's fear of God. And then finally, the gift of a mediator. And so first, let's think about the terrifying glory of God. When God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, in, in both Exodus and Deuteronomy, the entire experience was marked by glory. God's, God's greatness set on display. Again, both Exodus and Deuteronomy, they, they describe the awe-inspiring phenomenon that accompanied the giving of the law, including lightning and thunder, thick clouds and darkness, the sound of a trumpet that Exodus says grew louder and louder. There was fire and smoke that burned into the heart of heaven and a voice speaking that made its hearers cry out for it to stop. Israel's encounter with God at Mount Sinai left an impression on the people of God, and it was meant to leave an impression on future generations, including us. Because Israel was gathered as an assembly of God's people at the foot of a mountain. They've, they've come to God. They're in his presence. They're hearing his word. As verse 22 puts it, God spoke to the assembly at the mountain. And as we're going to see Hopefully more and more this morning, this is paradigmatic of the church assembled for worship. And the experience is marked by the weightiness of the glory and greatness of God. And this display of the greatness of God and his glory and hearing his voice, it caused the people to tremble. They, they thought they were going to die But I think something we need to pause and reflect on for a moment is the fact that there's something even more frightening than the experience the Israelites had at Mount Sinai. Do you know what's even more frightening than that? What's even more frightening than that is not being afraid. Of of, of being unmoved by the glory and the greatness And the majesty and the grace of God revealed when he speaks his covenant word. Treating it with indifference. To hear his voice and to not be moved. That is the truly terrifying reality. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of God is the path to life, the only way to be truly wise and to experience true life is to know the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, the Lord says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my 
word. Think about that for a second. Trembles at my word. Friends, does that, does that ever describe us? Have you ever found yourself buckling at the knees as you hear the word of the Lord? You know, here we are. We're gathered as an assembly of God's people. We have come to another mountain and to God to hear his word. Does it, does it ever cause us to tremble that we are listening to the words of the living God? Or do we take him lightly? Do we think he is one who can be trifled with? Do we, do we shrug with indifference at the word of the Lord? Do we come proud and confident in ourselves or humble and contrite in spirit? It all boils down to, to the question that I'm, I'm driving at here. Have you ever felt the appropriate kind of fear of God? Does God's word ever leave you shaking? <laughs> or does it ever leave you trembling? The glory and greatness of God is revealed to us ultimately in the word of the cross. God's character and his greatness is set on display in the word of Jesus Christ and him crucified. His, his justice and mercy his power to save and to judge, the severity of his judgment and the unfathomable nature of his mercy and grace, it's all revealed in the word of the gospel. Does it ever cause you to tremble when you hear it? Do you know that old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you, were you there when he rose up from the dead? And then it says, sometimes I feel like shouting, glory, glory, glory. See, an apprehension of the glory of God puts the fear of God into our hearts. Too often, though, we're too busy fearing other things, aren't we? It's the fear of man. What man might say or what man might do. We fear for our future. We maybe fear about upcoming elections or financial concerns or perhaps it's revolving around wars and rumors of wars. And look, all of those things are, are completely understandable, but not in comparison to the greatness and the glory of God. If we are constantly preoccupied and fearful about little things, we will not properly fear the great thing. And that brings us to the next point, the people's fear of God. After catching a glimpse of the glory and greatness of God and hearing his voice speak out of the midst of the fire, the people were afraid. They were surprised to have even survived the experience. Catching a glimpse of his glory and hearing his 
voice. It left them saying, who can hear the voice of the Lord and live to tell about it? And in case we we think, well, maybe Israel is just blowing this out of proportion a bit. We go on to read that the Lord overheard everything that they said to Moses and said to Moses, the people were right in everything that they said. And, And then the Lord went on to express his desire, oh, that they would fear me always, oh, that they would have such a heart for me that they would fear me and keep my commandments in order that it might go well with them and with their descendants after them. Notice, notice that the fear of God and the well-being of the people are intimately, inextricably linked. But, you know, we don't typically think about fear as a good thing, do we? You know, we... Frankly, we don't know what to do with the biblical language of the fear of God, and so we just drop it out of our vocabulary. (laughs) It's not something you hear Christians talking about very much today. But the Bible celebrates and commands the fear of God and promises blessing and life to those who fear him. So what did it mean? What did it mean for Israel? Let's start there. What did it mean for Israel to fear the Lord? Well, step back for a moment and consider the bigger picture with me. The people of Israel, in the grand scheme of things going on in in the world at that time, were a bunch of nobodies. They were a group of slaves in bondage in Egypt. And they worshipped the gods of Egypt. They were idolaters. But the God who made heaven and earth, the God who is seated high above the heavens and robed in majesty, that God heard their cries and came down and with a mighty outstretched arm delivered them. And he showed them that the gods of Egypt are nothing before him and he defeated the greatest superpower of the world that time At that time, by drowning the armies of Egypt in the sea after leading his people through on dry land. And then he led them through wilderness by cloud and by pillar of fire. He provided for them. He brought them to Mount Sinai where he entered into a covenant with them to be their God And to have them as his people. A covenant spoken in terms of a marriage relationship. And he gave them his law. So that they would not stumble around in darkness. But that they would know how to live before him. And walk with him. In order that it might go well with them. As they go into the land that the Lord their God was giving to them. A land flowing with milk and honey. And then there's the whole sacrificial system that the Lord instituted at Sinai as well, giving them the Levitical laws, showing Israel how a holy God would atone for the sins of his people so that he might dwell in their midst. Now ask yourself the question, what sort of God is this? 
He is nothing like the gods of Egypt, a God of terrifying glory and indescribable love and mercy and grace. A holy God who cannot even look upon sin, who draws near to sinners. The infinitely glorious and incomparably great God, the God of salvation and judgment, who binds himself in covenant faithfulness to a bunch of fickle, idolatrous sinners. He revealed his glory to them and he showed them his steadfast love. And you see, it's this God who saves and judges the great God of glory present with his people that fills their hearts with godly fear. You see, if we, if, we are, if we are in our right minds, would we ever take such a God lightly? Would we ever trifle with such a God? Would we shrug with indifference or ignore his word? Would we, would we ever think that disobedience to his commandments is, is an insignificant thing? No, we, would, we wouldn't do that. If, if we have seen his glory and experienced his love and his grace and witnessed the severity of his judgments, then we will take God seriously. We'll revere him. We'll stand in awe of his majesty. We'll be left speechless by His love will turn from evil and walk in his ways. I love the way the prophet Jeremiah puts it. He says, we will fear and tremble because of all of the good that God has done. Jeremiah 33 verse 9. Or as the psalmist puts it, with you there is forgiveness of sins that you may be feared. See, we tend to think fear is a bad thing. And to be sure, to be clear, there there are kinds of fears that are cast out by love. John the Apostle talks about this. We're not slavishly afraid of God as the objects of his redeeming love. Then the security of the covenant of grace, the grace of God rids us of all kinds of fear. Fear of condemnation. Fear of death, fear of God giving up on you, fear of man, fear of what the future holds. On and on we could go, but there remains an appropriate kind of fear that we ought to have. A reverence and an awe of God that forms how, how we relate to him and also how we live before him. It's a fear that takes the weightiness of God seriously and takes ethical shape in the form of turning away from evil and keeping God's commandments. And what I really want us to appreciate this morning from this passage as we think about the proper fear of God is how it's bound up with the well-being of God's people. Do you see that in the Lord's words again in verse 29? Oh, that... They had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep my commandments. Why? Why is this God's desire? 
that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Oh, that they would fear me for their good, is what the Lord is saying. You see, this isn't a fear that cripples. This is a fear that causes us to flourish like tree planted by streams of water bearing its fruit in season. You see, it is precisely in the fear of God that we discover what it means to flourish as human beings. I'm using that language of flourishing because there's a lot of talk today about human flourishing. But do you know where human flourishing begins? It begins in the fear of the Lord. It begins with the fear of God. This is such a crucial lesson for God's people to learn that the fear of God and the good life go together. It's crucial because sometimes we are tempted to think that that actually is not the way that the world works. The path of life and happiness is actually found in doing what is right in my own eyes. And going my own way and doing whatever I feel like doing. The book of Proverbs is full of instruction along those lines saying... Well, the fear of the Lord is actually the path to life. And a lack of the fear of God is a fast track to ruin. Fearing the Lord means we turn from evil and keep his commandments in our lives. Not because we think that God is ready to just blast us the moment that we disobey. But because of his greatness and what he has done for us. Because he has redeemed us through the blood of our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus. And he is bringing us into a land flowing with milk and honey. Fear the Lord that it may go well with you. Friends, remember that those two things, these two things are bound together. Fearing God and keeping his commandments, that it may go well with you. See, this passage, it it stretches from fire and thick clouds and darkness to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the two are combined, right? We want to separate those two things. We want to tear them apart. We want to try to have the milk and the honey without the fire and thunder and lightning. But it's the thunder and lightning that is meant to drive us to the one who can give us the milk and the honey. Fear him that it may go well with you. And that brings us to the final thing I want us to notice. The gift of a mediator. God's display of his greatness and glory put fear into the hearts of the people. And they cried out for a mediator. And the Lord provided one in Moses. And all of this we need to understand is is pointing to something that is fulfilled In its fullness in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that the church gathered together, the church assembled, comes to the foot of a greater mountain than Mount Sinai. And to the ministry of a greater mediator than Moses. We have something better. Listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12. For you have come... To what you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You see, that's a, that's a clear reference to what we're talking about in Deuteronomy at Mount Sinai. In contrast, Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And here we see lines of continuity and contrast. Things that are similar and things that are different. And we would do well to pay attention to both. It's not one or the other. In terms of of similarity, we see both covenants involve a mountain. Both covenants involve a mediator. Both covenants involve uh, messages that are sent to the people of God. But the most striking difference under the new covenant is the blood. It's the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I think this contrast, it it ought to do at least two things to us. It ought to confront us, and it ought to comfort us. It ought to do both of these things, not one or the other. First, it ought to confront us with the fact that we will not escape if we neglect what the author of Hebrews calls so great a salvation. As Hebrews puts it, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What Hebrews is saying, if you persist in rebellion deliberately and you do not repent, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But Hebrews says a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume. Again, he contrasts it with the Mosaic Covenant. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses and then asks the question, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, listen to these words, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And who has outraged the spirit of grace. I think those are some of the most terrifying words in all of the Bible. Trampling underfoot the son of God. Profaning the blood of the covenant. And outraging the spirit of grace. So make no mistake, we, we've, we have to be confronted. We don't simply say to ourselves, well, fear, that's an Old Testament virtue. And love is what the New Testament is all about. No, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But that's not all. And that is certainly not where we should end. Because this contrast between the Old and New Covenant um, It also contains a message of comfort, which we hear in the blood, which speaks, again, a better word than the blood of Abel. 
It, it ought to comfort us, particularly as we apprehend God's glory and learn to fear him. For the word that this blood speaks is a word of grace. A word of comfort. A word of assurance. A word that gives us confidence. Because it is by the blood of Jesus that we can enter into the holy place by the new and living way that has been opened up for us by the flesh of Jesus Christ, Hebrews says. And Hebrews says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we can draw near with full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. In terms of Deuteronomy, we can come before God and listen to his voice and not die. <laughs> have, you, have you come though? This is the question I want to leave us with. Have you come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant? Have you been sprinkled clean with his blood? Hebrews says, see that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, who speaks to you right now by the blood. Do not refuse the one who speaks to you now by the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Trust him. Fear him. And keep his commandments that it may go well with you and all of your descendants forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord our God, we thank you for the riches of your word. And we thank you that uh, you are a holy God who has made a way for sinners to be cleansed for our sins to be atoned for, that we might live in your presence and have you as our God and be named as your people. This is your work, it's not ours. And we pray that as we apprehend just a, a bit of your glory and your greatness and your grace to us in Jesus Christ, that our hearts would fear you in the right way, and that that kind of fear would, would shape how we live our lives as we walk before you and seek to be uh, your witnesses in this world. So, Lord, please teach us the fear of the Lord, that we might gain wisdom and that we might walk in your ways. And we pray and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen.